Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special edition of the Empire Podcast. Almost 30 years on from its release, Mike Lee's Naked is as powerful as it was when it was first made. After the bittersweet comedy drama of High Hopes and Life is Sweet, it marked a determined detour into darkness for the director, charting the nightmarish, picaresque journey of its lead character, the poetic but problematic drifter Johnny, a never better David Thewlis, as he crashes into London and the lives of those he encounters. It won both Lee and Thewlis prizes at the Cannes Film Festival and had a big impact on their subsequent careers as well as the careers of those who worked on the film. Now remastered in glorious 4K, Naked has been re-released for your home entertainment pleasure and so to mark the occasion, I sat down over the last few months and over a number of fascinating Zoom sessions with Lee, Thewlis, cast members Leslie Sharp and Peter White, costume designer Lindy Hemming, director of photography Dick Pope, composer Andrew Dixon and hair and makeup designer Christine Blundell for an in-depth oral history of this all-time classic. But there's only one place to start, and that is at the very beginning of the project, and with Mike Lee himself. Naked's one of those films, uh, which are quite a number that I've made, where really the journey of discovering what the film is, is the journey of, you know, making it, really. I had some sort of sense of the spirit of the thing, and I knew that I'd asked uh, David Thewlis to to be in it, and, and um, I knew that he would carry it because I'd already worked with him a, a couple of times, and the previous time, which was Life is Sweet, he played an insignificant part, which was the boyfriend of Jane Horrocks's anorexic character. But because of the dramatic narrative requirements of the film, you only saw him very little. I mean, just pretty well one and a quarter times. Over now to David Thewlis, who plays Johnny. I kind of wrote myself out of it by uh, breaking up with Jane Horrocks' character, uh, much to my chagrin, because I, I didn't, you know, I should have thought ahead and realised that was the case and that her family were the centre of the film. I thought it would be about me. I spoke to him when I was preparing the next film with the very rem- vaguest ideas as to what it should be. And I said, will you, will you be in it? And he said, well, I'd love to, but how do I know that won't happen again? And I'll just wind up with a... So I said, whatever happens, I promise you, you'll have a substantial slice of the pie. So that, that's a starting notion, if ever there was one. You know. And I was a little reluctant because of what happened, because I'd done an awful lot of background research for Life is Sweet and thought of, I would have a, a bigger role. And I'm not, I said, I'm not sure I could go through all that again, Mike, and uh, give you know, th- that much to you and end up with like a, such a, a minor part. And he said, no, I promise you this time you'll be front and centre and you'll, you'll really, you know, have a significant role. You'll be there on the first day of rehearsals, which I knew was a key thing because he brings people in in, in streams. Uh, he said, you know, you'll be there on day one. Therefore, you know, you will certainly be, uh, you know, your, your name will be right up there. And, I, and then I agreed because I had enjoyed it so much working with him and um, who would turn down that chance. So, and, that, and then that was it. We didn't know what it would be. I had no idea what it would be. It, there was no, he didn't say, we're going to be sort of, you know, this kind of film. It was just like, do you want to do my next film? You'll have a big part. Yes, okay. <laughs> so Lee had his leading man. He also had some idea of what he wanted, what was then an untitled movie, to become. I had a sense of things. 
I had some notion that I wanted to deal in some way with unacceptable male behaviour. And then I also had some preoccupations on the go a little bit about, I mean, we were, we were in 1992 and I knew that the millennium was lurking. Nobody was talking about the millennium, but it was lurking there on the, um, on the distant horizon. But really, it would be wrong to say that any of these things were a scheme or at the forefront of my consciousness because, in any particular way, because it really is all about starting to explore characters and to, to actually do what novelists do and painters do and other artists, sculptors, you know, which is to you know, make a mark and then respond to what it tells you to do. Enter then the Mike Lee process, through which he shapes all of his movies over a period of many, many months, including the filming process. There's a sense that this is shrouded in secrecy, yet I found that Lee and Co. were quite happy to explain it, or at least, as shown here by David Thewlis, give explaining it a good old go. What is the Mike Lee process? You want that in 10 minutes? First up, let's hear from Lee himself. We actually make the film up as we go along during the shoot. The so-called rehearsal process, which is not actually rehearsing in any conventional sense, it is rehearsing, but that happens during the shoot in each location, location by location, scene by scene, where we build the actual scenes. The preparation period, which in this case was about six months with the actors, was more about creating the characters, their relationships, the characterizations, so how the actors will play the characters, the backstory and all of that in order that we could then explore on location and build the film. It is an ongoing investigation which arrives at the finished product. Lee assembled a cracking cast, including Greg Crutwell, Catherine Cartledge, Claire Skinner, Ewan Bremner, Susan Fiddler, Gina McKee, and, as Johnny's ex-Louise, Leslie Sharp. The two would work again together on Fear of Drake in 2004, but this was Sharp's first exposure to Lee's method. All sorts of rumours get out about the way that Mike works and what he does and what to expect, but actually nothing prepares you for it. It's, it's a long rehearsal process you go in and when you're in, you work very intensively and then you have sometimes weeks where you're not seeing him and you're not talking to, I, I mean, you know, that is absolutely, the, the rules get laid out straight away, which is that basically when you go in, what you're doing is working with Mike and should he feel that it's, uh, you know, part of what he wants to do, he introduces you to another character and then you 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 know you will improvise and you'll go on from there but actually the premise is that unless you're working you don't talk about it those actors at the end of the day are not allowed to really they're allowed to see each other i mean Catherine and i would often walk from the rehearsal room to uh, the tube station uh, but we were forbidden absolutely forbidden from talking about what we were doing We'd have to talk about other things. Um, and it was no way, because I wouldn't be allowed to say, hey, I'm playing this guy from Manchester who's just left his girlfriend and his mother does this, da da because she would not be allowed to find those things out unless she was in character as Sophie and she would like life. You know, I don't know anything about you. 
uh, until you tell me uh, that information and you can't, you know, go to another version of an individual and go, yeah, but tell me these secret things that the real you would never tell me. It's it, You only have the information. So really as much as possible, you're recreating real life situations in terms of interpersonal relationships. Like Thewlis, actor Peter White had worked with Lee before on Meantime. He received a slightly later call-up to the process. So I came in at a later stage with some other actors. but I, So I think I had a four or five weeks maybe. And you start, you know, you have your, your interviews with Mike just to th- get the pebble rolling of who it is you're going to play. And obviously he has a rough idea of scenario, but he he's leaving it so much to you and you develop, you get a name, you get a little background, you get a little clue as to the kind of character. And then he'll say, right, go up. You think he did this. You think he grew up there. You think he, whatever his background, go off and um, create it. Slowly but surely, as the process unfolded, what would become naked began to emerge, as Mike Lee explains. There is no question that, you know, if you're making a, a movie, there has to be a film in your head. However spurious or vague or fluctuating that notion may be, and it may fluctuate considerably from one week to the next and grow. I mean, you can't help but imagine the film narrative dramatic possibilities of things that are going on because that's what you're there to do. So what I do is I get on the go and bring a sort of premise and then, and Dick Pope, in this case, I shared it with him and the production designer, Alison Chitty, and the costume designer, Lindy Hemming, and indeed, Christine Blondell, the makeup designer, but primarily with the, the cinematographer and the production designer. Dick Pope is Lee's go-to cinematographer. You could say that he puts the DP in DP. Probably shouldn't do jokes in an oral history. Anyway, let's move on. The two have worked together pretty much incessantly since Naked. Pope was nominated for an Oscar for his work on Mr. Turner in 2014. But before Naked came along, they had only worked together once on Life is Sweet. Here's Dick Pope. Life is Sweet and Naked are polar opposites in terms of feel and look. But, you know, every film, I think every film I've ever worked on with him has got a very different style, a very different approach, visually as well. Knowing nothing about Naked, I went to see him and he told me that he wanted to make a film, like a a journey, a nocturnal journey through London, a nighttime Dickensian journey that that this character would take, meeting people along the way, many different people along the way. That character was, of course, Thewlis's Johnny. Lee's CV is littered with compelling and brilliantly drawn characters, but Johnny might well be the standout. Sharp of tongue, sharper of mind, but with a self-destructive streak, the length of the M6 he uses to get from Manchester to Liverpool at the film's beginning. Johnny is a contradictory concoction of all kinds of character traits. He is aggressive, abusive, abhorrent, and we haven't even got to the bees yet. He's smarter than you and wants you to know it. And here, Thewlis talks about how he and Lee began the process of planting the seeds that would lead to Johnny. He came from an initial source character, a, a, a person, a person I knew, who, who, who was all these things. Um, it was 
charismatic, intelligent, very problematic, um, toxic with women, aggressive, um, arrogant, overconfident, bizarre, but funny and slightly vaudevillian and nihilistic. Um, he, he was a very complex man because he was quite awful. But a lot of people liked him in spite of themselves and in spite of his behavior, including women. And it was why initially I really wasn't too crazy about tackling this particular character in my life because, because Mike chooses the person. The actor does not choose who it will be. He tells Mike everyone and Mike says, this is the person we will, we will concentrate on. And my first response was like, oh, no, because I... <laughs> I don't want to be with this guy for six months thinking about him. One is absolutely discouraged from therefore going and finding the guy and meeting up with him and talking to him. That's totally discouraged unless it's almost unavoidable because you've chosen someone who lives in your flat, you know. Um, but I don't think Mike would choose such a person. Lee has his own recollection of the offence described by Thewlis. What he won't have said, and he may not remember, is that he actually came up with over 100 people there was no brief at all. There never is. I never give a brief to an actor. We just sat, sit and chew the fat. I, the actor talks about loads of people, and he had a very long list. It was well, uh, I think it was 111 or something like that. He held the record for quite a long time, but then it, that record was broken considerably by Sally Hawkins, who had over 200 people on her list when we did Happy Go Lucky. My job is then to, you know, think about all sorts of possibilities of all kinds of people and gradually whittle it down. Now, in the process of doing that, I am on my own creative journey. It seems from what he says, and I've forgotten this, that in those days that I would get actors to base their characters on one person that they knew. Nowadays or later and more recently, I generally get them get it down to three and we amalgamate them together. But whichever way you look at it, we are inventing a character. We are not simply portraying the person that the actor knew. That's a, a starting point for growing a character. But, but it's important because it means, apart from anything to do with my notions or conceptions or sense of the possibilities of things, it means that the actor, from a practical point of view, has got something to, got a character to do. I am doing this person who I know. So the actor's got something to do to stand up and act, if you see what I mean. As Johnny began to form during the preparation period, Lee brought in costume designer Lindy Hemming and hair and makeup supervisor Christine Blundell to help turn him into a flesh and blood creation. All straggly hair and long, flowing coat. First up, here's Lindy Hemming on how she conceived of Johnny's look, starting with a silhouette. You sometimes just see this big swooping shape. And I think that as well as that, and I can probably say this in retrospect, not in other time, but when I watched it on screen, I felt like there was a big hollowness inside that shape. You sort of looked into a darkness when you looked at him. And I'm sure that's me that thinks that afterwards. <laughs> but at the time, I think we were, I don't know, you know, sometimes you find an item of costume. It might be the most mundane thing you could imagine. And it look, you look at it and you imagine it and you think, well, that might work. And then, the moment, the big moment that can make you cry, you know, but is when the actor puts it on and when they put it on, you know, they're going to do something. You know, it's going to be part of something. And I could say Johnny and naked. I could say 
Heath Ledger in the, as the Joker. I can say Timothy Chalamet now as Wonka. You you just see a shape and you think, whatever I do, I must maintain. You know, we, I must that must be maintained that shape. But I think the silhouette and the the silhouette is more important for many, many in many of the, the characters than um, than lots of the details, really. And what of Johnny's long black coat? The coat came. I'm absolutely sure at that time we didn't really have the money to make almost anything. There were some things I made, but not not that coat. That coat came from a secondhand shop. I'm sort of certain. I would suppose it would be in the Camden Brick Lane <laughs> uh, field of battle, you know, uh, because because that's where that kind of thing you'd find, and it would be lovely and worn, and you know, uh, but it wouldn't be the only thing. You'd probably I probably would have bought you know like five coats. Being able to buy more more examples um, if you get it from somewhere cheap and somewhere worn already, and that one would be the one that the you know you knew did the work, did the job. David Thewlis elaborates on the process that led to Johnny's costume. We experimented with a few things. Remember, he used to wear some big red Doc Martins at one point, and uh, I think we flirted with a trilby, uh, some kind of headwear, or fedora, or something ridiculous. And we tried so few things until we felt like it doesn't feel like this is him. And indeed, those things weren't based on the original guy because physically the guy did not resemble me at all. And I was very, very, very skinny then. And for some reason, we settled on this look of this sort of dream pack trousers, the long coat. And I was a bit reluctant because I was like, but that's kind of how I'm dressed. Like I, I was sort of going, around, you know, being from the North, I was a big fan of like Echo and Bodyman and all. And it was that kind of late 80s. You know, when a lot of young men were dressing in long coats, crummies, and, 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 and that was the style of jeans at that time. So it was a bit like that's a bit like me, which I think adds to this myth that after the film, I was still in character because I was still walking around Soho sometimes in a long coat. I'm like, but that's why I'm not going to change the way I dress now. I still wear a long coat. I still to this day, quite often, now the winter's coming, I'll be in a long coat. That's just what I, 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 I do. But if you see Thewlis knocking around London, chances are he's going to be clean-shaven and looking nothing like Johnny whatsoever. Johnny's hair is different, for example, a greasy mop, a thatch on top of his head. And of course, there's the facial hair as well, the scraggly facial hair. Both of those were the creation of Christine Blundell. For his look, we kind of, when he started rehearsing, you know, I was just like, just let everything grow. He really understood the depth of who Johnny was. And, you know, what with his hair getting stragglier and stragglier? And it was kind of an experiment to start off with because we were just like, well, say he's had a haircut like two years ago and, you know, he kind of just every now and again, he just nips at it. And we sort of did that and I was just like, let's just grow the facial and see what happens. You know, we're talking six months of preparation, six months of rehearsal and improvisation. And basically I did not cut my hair or shave during that time. Uh, that might seem incredible because my beard's not that big, but that's as, that's as big as my beard gets, folks. <laughs> that's six months of growth. So Johnny was beginning to take shape, visually at least. And now Lee further expounds on what drew him to this character. Part of the thing that started to excite me and started to become the driving force of David and my collaboration, and that's the important thing, is the, is the complexity of this character. The complexity of Johnny, you know, the contradictions. I mean, apart from anything else, you know, you could argue that Naked is a film about the failed education system. I mean, a kid like Johnny, 
I mean, you can be sure that at every opportunity, teachers would have kicked him out of the classroom for being mouthy or cheeky or obstreperous or whatever. But any half-decent pedagogue would have seen his potential and he should have gone to university or whatever. And all of those thoughts, those are on the go, but it's not, these are not intellectual decisions. This is, they're rational decisions, but they come out of an intuitive sense of somebody. And then we started to say, well, you know, it, obviously will have read what will have read and there's no limit to what he might read i mean in the film itself he actually is reading the bible at one point that led us into the notion of all kinds of research into all kinds of quite solid things and also quite a lot of nonsense and conspiracy theories and all kinds of other bullshit there can often be an undercurrent of darkness in lee's work it was more overt in naked as that movie developed and that led lee and pope down a very interesting visual alley. When he described it to me, described his vision to me, I remembered this process called bleach bypass, which I had worked on with about seven or eight years before on the film 1984 with Roger Deakins. I did second unit on that film. Not not huge amount of work, but I did I did enough on it to see the bleach bypass, and I I obviously saw the film when it came out. I loved the look of it. I loved the really desaturated, really desaturated. More than you can only go to black and white after that, and um, and the extreme contrast. But this look, I just had I just had it in my mind that um, when he talked to me about it, that we should explore it. I went and did some tests with the production designer and a group of us went out into London. Uh, we tested on the streets of London at night with very little lighting. And then we, we looked at faces with that bleach bypass, which is, which is a, a, without getting nerdy about it, it's a process where the bleach bath in the processing of the, neg- of the print, not the negative, the print was... Um, skipped you don't wash the bleach away and therefore the silver is retained within the uh, print that's kind of what gives you that look when people think of naked they tend to think of a film largely set on the mean and dark streets of london we'll get to that in a few minutes but actually the film was largely set and devised and shot in one house a house in dalston It's there where Johnny goes when he leaves Manchester in disgrace and comes to find his ex, Louise. And it's there where Lee and Pope and Thewlis and Sharp and Catherine Cartledge spent an inordinate amount of time devising and shooting scenes. Did they have happy memories of this house in Dalston? Hmm, well, let's see what Leslie Sharp has to say. I wonder if the people who live there now know what went on in there. And I wonder if it's I wonder if it's been I would be very surprised if it hasn't been completely and utterly gutted and gentrified, because when we were there, it really was a disgrace, (laughs) a delightful and utterly um, wonderful disgrace. It was horrible. As far as I can remember, I don't think there was any central heating or any um, I don't think there was any kind of warmth. (laughs) The house, which can be found at 33 St Mark's Rise, just off Downs Park Road in Dalston in East London, 
was actually a very late addition. Mike Lee. The house was a terrific find. I mean, Alison Chitty is a brilliant designer who's spent most of her, certainly her um, subsequent career, designing operas. Uh, she's an operatic kind of designer, if you like, although she does do, I mean, I've worked with her on other things, including Secrets and Lies and Life is Sweet, but she's good at the domestic as well. And I've worked with her on plays in the theatre. I said, well, it's a, it, we're looking for a, a flat, an apartment in a building of somewhere. And they kept, she and the uh, location manager kept coming back with pictures of flats in houses. And I kept saying, it has to have more than that. It has to have an edge to it. It has to have a, a, a mood, an atmosphere. It can't just be any old flat in any old house, in any old street. And she got quite fraught about it. And then one day they came rushing in and they said, what about this? And they found this house that we used. And there it was, this sort of um, almost Charles Adams <laughs> uh, neo-Gothic Victorian pile that you could view from all these different angles, and it was on a slope. And it just had this edge to it. Dick Pope. The shooting in the house um, was really intense, but we, I kind of amplified that by never shoot going very wide. It was always quite tight, and thereby the claustrophobia that Johnny feels, it added to that. It added to the feel of him being um, hemmed in and needing to escape. So, I mean, we do that a lot on Mike's films. We shoot quite tight. It, there's, there's, it's, a, it's a way of shooting, one that um, Mike loves and I, I do too. There's no point in being wide and showing everything when you – you really want to be close and involved. I constructed a piece of action where it, it, the camera pans backwards and forwards between the kitchen and the living room. Now, obviously, that's a construct. I mean, of course, because I'm, the camera never moved by itself. It's always motivated by one or other of them moving from one room to the other or down the stairs or up the stairs, all of which happen in the one shot. The location lent itself to that. We put down this rail for for a... Um, a camera dolly so that we could slide up and down this tiny landing left and right. The actors were absolutely word perfect. They always are in Mike's films, almost invariably word perfect. By the time we get to shoot, we're on the, the living room on Leslie Sharp sitting there and, and Catherine Cartledge um, in there. And then Johnny comes out and goes into the game and we're moving, right? The camera slides over so that we can see into the kitchen. Then it slides back and then it slides and slides and slides and goes on and on, sliding this way and that way. And then we fall back and look up the stairs and then we come down and look down the stairs. And I remember screwing it up a couple of times, but finally we got it sorted out and shot it. But it, it's great it is because it's a great shot, one of my favourite shots in the film because. It never cuts. It's held. It's like what Mike and I love to do more than anything else is to hold shots that work. And they're kind of developing, developing, developing. Developing, developing, developing brought Lee and his crew and Thewlis into Soho, into the heart of London, out of Dalston, to film scenes where Johnny walks the streets of London and encounters some colourful characters, including Archie and Maggie, a warring Scottish couple played memorably by Ewan Bremner 
and Susan Fiddler. It's this sequence that has cemented Naked's reputation as one of the great London movies and one of the great nocturnal London movies. Here's David Thewlis. They were the, probably the most difficult scenes to shoot because to film in the middle of Soho on a, on a Friday night, I think it was, is obviously quite difficult. And it's actually right around the corner from where I lived at the time. I lived on Old Compton Street, just really around the corner because that's on Berwick Street, I think, where it shot. Mike Lee thinks otherwise. Archie and Maggie shot overnight in Brewer Street in Soho outside the famous Italian delicatessen called Lena's Stores, which is still there. And Lena's Stores had no idea that a film had ever been shot there at the time because we filmed overnight. We filmed all night and um, we never had crowd control or extras. We just, the cars went past and people walked past and we just... I mean, we constructed the scene very precisely elsewhere, and then we came and played the scene on the street. Uh, and the only people around there that took any notice of us were there was a brothel down the alleyway. They're on the corner of an alleyway. Uh, and the girls sent a message down and said, would we please go away? We were putting off their customers. <laughs> Again, David Thewlis has other recollections. Strangely, we didn't get that much of a problem because one would think at that time of night, People, everyone's coming out of the clubs and pubs and everyone's just pissed and going to scream and shout at you. But I think they could see there was a film crew there, but they weren't sure that we were the subject of it because we were behaving like the people in the town. <laughs> so people were probably thought, well, what are they filming? Because those two are just obviously belong here. So it was surprisingly not uh, so, so difficult. This sequence has a fly-on-the-wall, immersive, almost documentary quality to it. And that was because Lee and his crew, in search of the ultimate stamp of authenticity, had hidden themselves from the view of the general public and, in fact, their actors. So whilst the likes of Thewlis and Bremner and Fiddler were getting on with the business of acting, Lee and Pope and co. would observe from afar. It was this shooting method, in fact, that caused Thewlis to have some impromptu encounters with acting chums of his, including Kenneth Cranham, who came up to him all concerned, thinking that he'd had perhaps had a funny turn. To hear that story in full, check out an appearance Thewlis made along with Mike Lee on a recent episode of the Empire podcast. Oh yes, indeed, folks. And that's enough synergy for the time being. Here's Dick Pope talking about how he and Mike Lee and the rest of the crew pulled off this sequence. I don't know what the hide was. I can't remember, but I think it was something they mocked up, like a, a thing BT use when they're doing, the, um, they're doing a box in the street, you know, weather cover. So we had that in the middle of the... There's an island right opposite the tube station, um, a little island, and we erected that right on the island, poked the, poked the camera through, and then walked away and, and shot it remotely. I'd turn it on, and then we... We all scarpered, got out of the way, so that nobody looked over that way. So that we were in, so the camera was invisible, no tripod, no nothing. It was surrounded by a little hide. Nobody looks at us, nobody sees us. So yeah, that's that's how we did that. It kind of was like guerrilla filmmaking. We didn't really plan anything. We just took the camera and Johnny and Archie and Maggie down there. Obviously, Mike had rehearsed them and all that, but. That's what we did. Threw them into that environment, that real environment. 
Lena's stores may still be there, on Greek Street, fact fans, but Naked has become, over the years, a snapshot of a London that once was, and in many ways, a London that no longer is, that just no longer exists, as Mike Lee explains. The most famous image of the film, when he's sort of in this great sort of barren urban landscape, and they come running out there, run round him and run off into the night. That's actually on the site of the Shoreditch Railway Station, which closed down in 1937. Somebody recently said, oh, can we go and look at that location? And the answer is no, because there's now a posh block of flats there. It's at um, Brick Lane in the East End, and uh, no, you can't. Well, actually, Mike, that's Somebody Was Us at Empire Magazine, which is awkward. Anyway, after the scene's set in Soho, Johnny finds refuge, of sorts, overnight, in an office building on Charlotte Street. There he meets a security guard called Brian, played by Peter White. And the two of them have a very interesting interaction, which in many ways forms the heart of Naked. Lee credits production designer Alison Chitty with discovering the building. One of her great contributions to the film was this. I had invented with um, David and with Peter White, who plays Brian, the fact that this guy security guard is guarding an ordinary office block full of desks and phones and you know all, all kinds of stuff gizmos and that was the idea and they went off to find the appropriate location and again one day she came in and she said how about this for an idea i found a place and this was the actual thing she said it's empty there's nothing there yet she said wouldn't it be great if he was guarding nothing guarding space And of course, when she said that, I thought, of course, that was consistent with somehow the spirit of the the whole film. So that's a great contribution, you know, and it really, really worked itself into the whole thing. It was great, you know. That sequence was shot in that building on Charlotte Street over the course of five nights. And as Johnny confuses and perplexes and antagonises Brian, but somehow gets it under his skin and they form an interesting bond. It is one of the film's most unforgettable sequences and really showcases Thewlis as Johnny at his most manic and commanding. Here's Thewlis. Some of the strongest memories are of filming that because that was such a, a an intense period of the rehearsal and improvisation because we, unlike most everything else which we rehearsed, sometimes out on the streets or, or, or back at the rehearsal rooms. The rehearsal rooms are like a big derelict building in Marylebone. Um, but we rehearsed that where we shot it. That, that building really was empty. It was a big new office block that had still not been put to any use. And I don't think it was for several years. Um, and so we, we improvised there in, in, in situ. And I met Peter White himself and Peter White's character for the first time in character sitting in the doorway there. Peter White. I created my character, a lot of research and interviews and God knows what, because you go so in depth to create the hinterland of these people in his films. And then you work with Mike alone, you kind of improvise with him alone. And then one magical night in Charlotte Street, you see a figure slumped outside the door of your little world that you've created, my security guard guarding an office block. 
and the slumped figures on the pavement, and you have a double reaction. You think, oh, it's David Thewlis I'm going to be acting with in this film. And your other more important reaction is, is picking up his character, because I had no idea what David had created. And that's Mike's genius. He catches those moments of meeting the shock of the, of the unpredictable. At the heart of this sequence is one of the most famous shots of Lee's career, a near four-minute Brafura single take in which Johnny embarks on a rant about the apocalypse, amongst other things, while he and Brian are backlit and shrouded in silhouette. It is an astonishing display of acting and writing and direction. The whole kit and caboodle, really. Here's Peter White. And David was on fire. You know, I don't know how long he'd been on the film by the time he met me, but he was like burning with this extraordinary kind of passion and lyricism and fluency. And it was like a blast to walk up and down the stairs in an office block at four in the morning for five nights. It really was terrific. David Thewlis. You know, it became clear this was going to be a centrepiece of the film. Um, you know, the, the the longest part of that speech in silhouette, the long track in, was something that we'd uh, only written just before we shot it, which is often the case. I mean, you, we do long, long, long improvisations, which are uh, finessed, edited right down to the last second while Dick Pope was still lighting the scene and we'll still be going, should we say this, 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 and take that? Remember that we said that bit? Let's put that in there. And I thought, because it's about three, four-minute speech, um, you know, I thought Mike was going to cover it in several shots and I'd have the time to get it into my head. And uh, he said, no, I'm just going to do one long track in. And I was kind of very disturbed by this because I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think I could possibly learn a speech of that length, which we'd only just finished writing. Um, and I was, I was very stressed. Uh, and I, I think we did many takes. Uh, but I think Mike, in the end, used, used take two or three. Mike Lee. That's an interesting, I suppose, illustration of how we work, because all of the action in all of the in this film and all of my films uh, is achieved by going to the location and having long improvisation rehearsals without any crew there, out of which I can then draw and construct the scenes. I mean, obviously, we I then there's input from me, but in the end, uh, uh, in the first place, one starts with seeing what happens and exploring through improvisation. And so it became very clear to me that not only would we have to shoot all that stuff in the office book at night time, but that we should start by going into nighttime mode to rehearse it as well. I thought, I said, you know, if we try and rehearse this in the day, we won't achieve it. We won't get, it won't be motivated. And so what I do is to go and sort of sit down quietly in a corner somewhere and then it gets set up and they go into character and then things happen. And on this particular occasion, on a particular night, um, I was sitting there crouched in the corner uh, in the dark because I knew they were going to come around and that Brian would turn the lights on. And, so. and they went into the next room with the lights on and came into the room in the foreground where it was dark and quite spontaneously and without any planning or design, Johnny, David, went into this, into a, an early improvised version of just going on about this, that and the other, this sort of rant. Well, of course, what I saw was what you see in the film, was the early version, the first version of what you see in the film, 
which is the two of them silhouetted, again, purely fortuitously. Uh, and I thought, Christ, this is great. This is it. You know, this is what this bit's about. And then, of course, Johnny, um, David and I then very, very painstakingly and slowly deconstructed and reconstructed and scripted and rehearsed and scripted and rehearsed and refined that speech so that he could knock it all out because it's all in one shot. The relationship between Brian and Johnny is one of the film's most crucial, and that is cemented in a scene that takes place the following day in a local cafe. It is there that Brian tells Johnny, don't waste your life. It's a scene that very nearly didn't exist at all, according to Peter White. We got stuck at one point late in the week, and we just didn't know where the scene could go. And we wrapped early, came in the next morning, and um, carried on. And then we ran out of time. Simon Channing Williams, one nice, wonderful producer, was kind of on the set looking at his watch and saying, "We've got to, we've got to wrap this up because we got, we only got this location for like another few hours or whatever." So we had to get out basically. And there was a piece in the called the Master Improvisation that Mike does initially at the meeting of the characters. It can go on for hours and hours, but in that. You just follow your instincts and the character you've created. And there was a very important part of my character and my relationship with the young, tormented character that David was acting. That hadn't we hadn't had time to get to it in our week in Charlotte Street of night shoots. And Mike said, How you know, I know we've been rushing it, but how do you both feel? And I said, There's something I feel we've missed. And uh, he said, what was it? And I said, it's where I, my character has a little dream of living in a cottage in the west of Ireland. And I showed that to David. And the line I say to him is, don't waste your life. I, meaning, I kind of felt I had, he, my character felt he had a bit. And this young firebrand in front of him, he, he feels an empathy for. So he's saying, don't waste your life. And we hadn't got to that in the filming. And Mike said, yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, Simon, book Peter for another day. And the next scene, if you remember, is in the cafe where he meets Gina McKee's character, I think. And I'm he put me in like an extra day. And we had so that little scene and that bit of dialogue was across the cafe table. Brian and and Johnny in the film, me and David. And I thought that's a great um I respect to Mike because he follows the actors and if you trust the actors, he knows that what they've done is, you know, the goal of the film. Lee said earlier that he conceived of Naked partially to tackle and examine unacceptable male behaviour, what would now be known as toxic masculinity. And Johnny is quite often downright toxic. He's sexually aggressive with a number of women in the movie. When we first meet him, he's indulging in extremely rough sex that could be said to cross a line into rape. He quickly seduces Catherine Cartlidge's Sophie, the flatmate of Louise, and again engages in rough sex with her. He makes sexual advances to the character known as Woman in the Window, played by Deborah McLaren, a lonely and mysterious figure upon whom Brian, watching from across the street, has developed a mild infatuation. And then, once he's infagled his way into her house, he cruelly dismisses and dismantles her. And he's not even the worst example of toxic, noxious male sexuality in the movie. 
That dubious honour belongs to Greg Crutwell's Jeremy slash Sebastian, her preening, privileged, sneering horror of a man who claims to own Sophie and Louise's flat and, in the film's most shocking scene, rapes Sophie. Naked is often uncompromising, uncomfortable viewing, especially in its dispassionate depiction of those scenes, and has attracted its share of criticism over the years. Here, Thewlis talks about Johnny's sexual appetites and how he processed that as an actor. Well, obviously I realised this was going to be a theme, much as one isn't thinking of themes when you're making it, but the very fact that Mike chose this particular man for me to base him on when one of the main things I told him about this man was his his, his uh, aggressive behaviour with women. Um, and much as I, especially when we get in, started getting into, you know, some of the philosophical stuff and the fun stuff and the kind of conspiracy theory stuff and enjoying research and all that, I knew that that was something his his sexual aggression was something we had to keep coming back to because whenever he found himself in that situation, I couldn't, David, decide, yeah, but I don't really want to do... I'm liking this character too much and I feel that's going to make him very unsympathetic. That's not the the remit. So realising it was about, you know, say now toxic masculinity, I don't think it was a phrase we used back then, but about... sexually aggressive, sexually dominating, uh, violent man and trying to understand that with, with the actresses as well and, and, and steering a very, you know, close line about what was um, entertainment and what was authentic investigation of men like this without wanting to be accused of being men like that, or, you know, as, as I know Mike was in terms of being accused of misogyny or, or making r- rape look, you know, in any way uh, forgivable or acceptable. Here's Mike Lee on the creation of Greg Crutwell's Jeremy slash Sebastian and how he saw him as both the ultimate manifestation of unacceptable male behaviour and also the main target of the film's ire. In the end, I think that manifests itself importantly more in the landlord character, Jeremy Sebastian, than it does. I mean, and that character is there in a way deliberately to offset the notion of misogyny in um, Johnny. Here's Lindy Hemming on how she designed the costume for Jeremy slash Sebastian for a large part of the movie that is essentially just a pair of black underpants. Well, you know those guys at the time who had, uh, they had, they liked chrome and chrome and black leather furniture and they sort of had bachelor pads. I'm not telling you that Greg Crowell was this, but the feeling, you know, of that, that feeling of the, you know, the hi-fi, <laughs> it's not Wi-Fi, but it's hi-fi, you know, and uh, there was all that thing, and I knew that those people really, there was a time when those people like, you know, jockey, what do you call them, wife fronts, I think they call, we called them then. And I think that was, uh, and I think that on him, that, that was really why. It was to sort of hint at that kind of life, <laughs> that he had that kind of life. We, we went for him, you know, the way we imagined him somehow. Um, he was horrible, wasn't he? Horrible. I think there was some women's vindictiveness in those and that underwear, probably. (laughs) 
Amongst the criticism the film has received over the years have been accusations of misogyny. Accusations that Mike Lee strongly rejects. Well, it's a character thing. I mean, you know, Johnny, I mean, obviously he's angry, he's sardonic, he is sexually driven. He's not, but he's not being a misogynist in the sense that he's not. I mean, you know, one of the, the daftest things that um, were, were said about the film uh, initially was that all, quote, all the women are doormats. Well, that, you know, that is not true. I mean, Louise is no doormat. For what it's worth, Sandra, who shows up at the end, is no doormat. After Jeremy slash Sebastian sexually assaults Sophie, he remains in the women's flat, taunting them, until Louise forcibly evicts him. Here's Leslie Sharp talking about that development and also the film's attitude towards sexual violence. I don't think the film is glorifying that behaviour. And I don't think the film is portraying anything that doesn't happen. It was happening then and it's happening now, that kind of behaviour. I think both of them, though, are both, both, the way that both of those men behave towards women is absolutely, at times, you know, you've got your hands over your eyes. You can't actually, I mean, I found it difficult. The film starts with Johnny obviously doing something to a woman that is hurting her. Throughout the film, he's clutching, he's, he's taking hold of women by the neck while he, you know, he's vile to that character that Debbie McLaren plays. You know, he absolutely knows how to undermine um, that poor woman, you know, who's obviously an alcoholic by telling her that she's old, she's ugly, she's, you know, all of those very, very sort of misogynistic, hateful, hateful things. And then you've got Jeremy. He's this version of one of those guys who works in the city and doesn't give a fuck about anybody or anything but money. And, I mean, he's a rapist, really, Jeremy. He's vile. So, yes, it's good that Louise stands up to him at the end. I mean, I think probably 30 years down the line, there might have, she might have stood up to him a bit more. All of them might have stood up to him a bit more. Mike Lee. I don't really mind what anybody says about anything I do, except when you get people talking utter crap because they're really not paying attention to what's actually in the film. And it's not black and white. Um, these are real people, if you like to put it this way. They are three-dimensional characters with great complexity and contradictions, and that accounts for Johnny as much as uh, um, any, any of the other characters. To the end, then. And Johnny, having finally received the bruising he's been cruising for the entire movie, seems to have turned something of a corner. Racked with pain and guilt... He reconciles with Louise and they make plans to return to Manchester. But eventually Johnny can't help but be Johnny and he swipes a wad of cash and sets off for destination unknown, hobbling away from the house in Dalston in the film's iconic closing shot. A shot which, as with so much in Naked's creation, came together at the 11th hour. Here's Mike Lee. The number one rule in all of my work is whatever... I decide should happen, has to be completely organic 
and totally motivatable by the characters, genuinely. I can't say, oh, well, never mind what you, what, whether you think he would or he wouldn't do this. Uh, you know, it's got to be, have that integrity. And so when I talk about, we couldn't say how it would end, what we were at, what I'm actually talking about, David and I said, well, does he stay? Does he go back to Manchester with Louise? Does he, you know, what does he do? And we couldn't quite unlock it. And the answer came to me in cinematic terms because I used to drive every day from North London to the location in um, Dalston in East London. And I drove along this road looking at this neo-Gothic peculiar house where the flat was and just seeing it. And one day I just looked and I suddenly thought, I know what this is. I just suddenly saw him hobbling down that street and I thought, that's the end. That's what, of course, he does. He buggers off and he grabs the money and he buggers off down the road, you know. And um, and then you think, well, then what? And then what becomes there's only one thing you can do and that's go clunk. Clunk means cut to black. But before that happens, the final shot had to be devised. Enter Dick Pope. He talked to me about it. We walked out onto the road and uh, and looked at this. He, want, he wanted David to come down the stairs, hobbling down the stairs with his ankle back, bashed up. So we couldn't put it on a track. Well, I first thought we could put it on a, um, in the back of a, a vehicle and, and basically track along. We could have done it like that, but it would, it would have been very, quite vague. It wouldn't have been very specific. And we actually, we ended up putting the camera right at the bottom of the stairs as he comes down. So we couldn't have done something that um, went off the pavement. It had to be something more flexible. They came up with the idea of doing it on Steadicam. And um, it's about the only the only shot in any of his films ever. We've done a couple, but that was certainly the first one. And uh, very rare for us to go on something like Steadicam passing it over to somebody else to, to get right. But um, that's what we did. We got a Steadicam guy come, came in and we did it. I think I, it was me who specified and asked Mike to do it at the end of the day with the sun kind of setting over behind the house, like a Western, like, like sunset, John Wayne at sunset riding away, like Johnny walking away at sunset seemed to be a, a good time to do it. And um, that's what we did. Given Lee's method, of course, not everyone who worked in the film was aware of the ending. Leslie Sharp. I didn't know that until I saw the film. But you know, I mean, the the the, the for me, the 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 thing is is that is that then you go, well, what would Louise do? I don't think Louis. I think Louise would just go to the coach station and go back to Manchester. And, you know, I'm sure that at some point Johnny would turn up. It's just that they don't go back in that happy sitting next to one another on the coach, sharing Kiora and a bag of nuts. When we showed it at the New York Film Festival, um, a festival that's great to go to because they're very, very intelligent, sharp audiences. And the first question came from a middle-aged guy who said, Mr. Lee, he said, is Johnny dead within an hour of the end of the film? And I said, you know what? 
That's for you to decide. With filming finished, Lee went into the editing suite with his longtime editor, John Gregory, who passed away in September of this year. And as the film came together, his thoughts turned to the score. He wanted something unusual. And so he turned to the composer, Andrew Dixon. Here's Mike Lee. Well, I mean, Andrew Dixon is, a, is a, an unsung genius, really. All the composers I work with, and he is absolutely top of the list. He, it only works, as far as I'm concerned, if the composer, what the composer brings to it comes from his or her emotional response to the film. It doesn't work. I don't work with composers who are good at doing film music, i.e. standard, bog-standard film music. You know, I'm not interested in that at all. So it's very much about the composer who is liberated to think of all kinds of possibilities that don't just sound like bog-standard film music. Andrew Dixon's score for Naked is anything but bog-standard film music. It is driving and insistent and urgent dominated by an incredible central theme and played on the harp. Here's Andrew Dixon. The the process that I go through with Mike is that I write a lot of tunes, um, basically, to start with, or I write one main theme tune. He comes to listen to that. Then I write 10 variations on that tune and he chooses one of those. Then I write 10 variations on the variation. And it's a pairing away process. So I ended up with with a, an idea for a melody. But the, the use of the harp was really to do with the fact that I, it struck me, I mean, it was partly to do with Dick's amazing uh, lighting, <laughs> that, that, that it had a terrific sort of classical look to it, an impressive, a big classical look somehow, some of the, the very desperate scenes. It's so amazingly lit. It, it has a powerful classical feel. And, and I immediately thought of a, a big classical instrument and the, the harp came to mind uh, as fulfilling that that sort of um, grandeur in a way the harp is played on the um, soundtrack by Skylar Kanga who's a very famous harpist classical harpist and we went and spent a best part of a day she, she's got t- two houses uh, Attached to each other in North London. One she lives in with her family, the other one's full of harps. <laughs> and we just went round, you know, trying out different sounds, you know. I mean, that's what it's about. And we went into that harp and listened to her playing through some of the bits that I'd written. And she was she was very enthusiastic and it sounded great. But we, you know, that we go to that extent of actually listening to stuff like that beforehand. And when it actually came to it, the recording, gee, some of it was almost impossible to play again because I didn't know the rules about harps and you have to sort of do lots of pedals and things to change the key or the pitch. Uh, but she managed amazingly to do it. Sadly, not all members of the Naked team are still with us. There's the aforementioned John Gregory who passed away earlier this year. Lee's producer, Simon Channing-Williams, passed away in 2009. But there's a tremendous sense of loss about Catherine Cartledge, who played Sophie in the movie. She would work twice more with Lee on Career Girls and Topsy Turvy before passing away suddenly, shockingly, in 2002. She was aged just 41. Here's Mike Lee paying tribute to her. 
Catherine Cardinal, that was the first time I worked with her. I knew her from around. It would be an understatement to say she took to it like a duck to water. Every day she'd say, while we were working on it, she'd say, this is such a gas. That's what was her expression. She had a huge sense of humour. She was brilliant at the characters. Uh, and she would, she, she, was, she was tough, you know. She'd take anything on and do it, go for it. David Thewlis. Catherine Cartledge, I didn't know. I'd never met her, never come across her. And my God, what a lucky man I was to have uh, even known that woman. She was wonderful. Um, and a great, great actress and a, a great human being and really became a great friend. Uh, during the film and after it. And, and when I think of Naked Eyes, I, I think so much of Catherine. Leslie Sharp. I loved Catherine. I'd worked with her before we did Naked, and um, I was delighted that we were going to be working together. And, you know, unfortunately, because of, because of the way the process worked, where, you know, you, you work together, but you're not allowed to sort of talk about it outside of the room um it meant that you know we weren't able to sort of like have conversations about um things that we were finding difficult or kind of going oh my god you know that was really hard or oh i'm not but you know in the way that maybe you would with a colleague on a you know in a different work process but what was fantastic was that years a, a few years down the line we worked together on another film and we were able to sort of like really sit back and talk about it and say oh my god do you remember that oh do you remember the you know the the weeks of um being in the house on the hill and sort of like being shut in different rooms and then coming out and then doing these improvs and Sophie and Louise the way that Sophie undermined Louise and, you know, we went through the whole thing and laughed and sort of were able to really unpack it. Her death was such a loss. There is no doubt at all that had she lived, she would by now be a distinguished film director because that's where she was heading. She wanted to make films and um, she certainly had the sensitivity and the imagination and the intelligence and the creativity to do that. The film certainly serves as a fitting tribute to Cartledge and her incredible talent. It also served as a turning point or a jumping off point for many of the people involved with the movie. At the Cannes Film Festival in 1993, Thewlis won Best Actor, Lee won Best Director, and it was nominated for the Palm d'Or. That didn't necessarily translate into Oscar or BAFTA nominations, but Naked's place in the Pantheon is assured. It put Thewlis on Hollywood's radar. It added another string or two, or even ten, to Lee's bow. And he quickly followed it up with Secrets and Lies in 1996, Career Girls in 1997, and Topsy Turvy in 1999. Many of the people who worked in the movie would go on to either win an Oscar, like Lindy Hemming, for Topsy Turvy, or be nominated for Oscars, like Dick Pope. And it remains a landmark movie, not only in Lee's career, but in British cinema in general. But what do the people who worked on the film think about it now? Did they look back on it fondly? Did they credit it with starting them on the path to success? Here's David Thewlis. 
Of course, it's meant an enormous amount to me over the years. And when people ask me, you know, what has been one of my favourite things to do, this inevitably always comes up because it was, it really was one of my favourite projects ever, apart from the fact that it launched me into a, a real wonderful career, an international career. Um, but because of the way it was made, because of working with Mike Lee, because of the collaborative nature of it, because of the length of it, I unfortunately learned that nothing would like be like that again in terms of well, you would never have that rehearsal again. You would never have that luxury. Um, but I've carried those ways of working forward into almost everything I've ever done. Leslie Sharp. I think that people who really got what Mike was doing with that film really, really loved it. It is an incredibly important film in the litany of British filmmaking. Dick Pope. It's been an airline ticket to America. It's university, universally loved in the States. It's especially directors we're talking about here because they're the ones who are asking me to shoot their film. They absolutely love the film. It opened up a lot of... Um, a lot of um, to open me to a lot of directors who who wanted some of that in their film. <laughs> they wanted they wanted the touch of naked, please, the magic of naked in their movie. And the last touch of naked has to go to the one, the only, Mike Lee. This film opened doors for us because I mean, this is the first film of mine that went to Cannes, and we got a couple of um, awards, you know. And the world came across it, you know, uh, and it was great, you know, because, you know, and again, you know, people, I mean, even in this conversation, we just had you at one point referred to a London film. Well, yeah, it's in London. Of course it is. But you know what? It could be in any big city. It's the Londonness is not the, the London in it is not the London of Londonness. I mean, it's not about. London particular locations or anything. It's about it's about the urban spirit, and it's about um, you know all the good and bad things. Mostly, many of them bad about the urban experience. You know, um, and the film I think has proven, uh, uh, but for me, not surprisingly, to be resonant and meaningful for people in all sorts of countries and around the world. You know. Because uh, it's not about London as we um, nostalgically think of it. And on that note, that is it for our oral history deep dive into Mike Lee's Naked. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed a departure from the usual Empire podcast style as well. Before we go, I do have to thank a couple of people for making this possible Sarah Beamond from the BFI and Jonathan Rudder, who were instrumental in setting up the interviews for this. And of course, I want to thank everyone who took time out of their busy schedules to speak to me for this. Leslie Sharp, Dick Pope, Andrew Dixon, Peter White, Christine Blundell, Lindy Hemming, David Thewlis, and of course, Mike Lee. Don't forget, of course, that Naked is now available in remastered 4K Blu-ray wherever you get your Blu-rays. The regular Empire podcast is out every single Friday. We would love it if you listened, if you don't already, that is. And of course, like and subscribe. We like that as well. We like liking and subscribing. 
And if you really like in-depth deep dives into films, boy, have we got specials for you. Spoiler specials, in fact, behind our spoiler special subscription paywall, just £2.99 a month to unlock an archive bursting with hundreds of spoiler specials, including incredible in-depth interviews with some of the best directors on the planet. Anyway, that's far too much chilling for me. All that remains now is to say thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.